Welcome to the Here and Now Motherhood podcast. Here and Now Motherhood is a nonprofit designed to support moms in their transition into motherhood. I'm your host, Nicole Hunt. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Here and Now Motherhood podcast. We have um, a mama that's going to share her story with us today. Um, somebody pretty special, Doctor. Oh, sorry, <laughs> uh, Doctor Diana Morlin, um, and she's here in Johnson City. Would you mind just introducing yourself? I'd be happy to. Thank you for having me. So I'm Diana Moreland. I am a clinical psychologist at ETSU in the Department of Psychology. I am a co-founder and president of the Appalachian Perinatal Mental Health Alliance, and I am a regional lead for our state infant mental health association. That's kind of the professional version of me. The personal version of me is that I am a mama of twin identical boys, Everett and Gunner, and um, partnered to a wonderful man and chef, Nathan Brand, who also owns Timber Restaurant. So like, I'm also a restaurant wife and Mm -hmm. twin mama, lots of things, lots of hats. Lots of hats. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So one thing, so you kind of mentioned how you are involved in infant mental health. Um, You also have research that focuses on maternal mental health, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I love, I love getting to work with women starting in pregnancy through postpartum um, and just have a passion for early prevention and intervention work with, with mamas and young kids. That's awesome. Um, so since you kind of have like a unique like research focus professionally, I thought we could kind of start your story kind of with your career before motherhood since it kind of all mixes together with you. It, it does. Yeah. Thank you for uh, inviting me to start the story way back when. Um, so really professionally, I started out as a, a child clinical psychologist. So really working with young kids, elementary school age kids, teenagers, and their families. And um, had great training at the University of Georgia, did a, a really challenging yet growth-inspiring internship year at the Virginia Virginia Commonwealth University Medical System, and then had the pleasure of going up to Ann Arbor, Michigan to do a two-year postdoc fellowship um, with Kate Rosenblum and Maria Music. And that fellowship changed my life. It changed my profession. It changed the way I view who we help and how we help and when we help. Um, And so all through my early career, I I loved working with elementary school age and teenagers, but really I learned that to help kiddos or help teens, I needed to work with their families and to help the families figure out how to support the kids. And oftentimes when I got into working with families, I realized that I was asking parents to do things that nobody had ever done for them. And so they didn't have the experience of what it felt like to grow up in a safe, nurturing, regulated environment. And so it didn't feel fair to ask parents to try to create those environments for their children when nobody had done that for them. Um, And so then fast forward to the University of Michigan and their Department of Psychiatry and the incredible work that was happening there around perinatal, meaning surrounding pregnancy during pregnancy and postpartum mental health and infant mental health. And during my two years at Michigan, I got to work with the developers of this program called Mom Power. 
So I mentioned Kate Rosenblum and Maria Music. Um, I call them kind of like my academic mentor mamas. Um, Kate is a clinical psychologist um, who has expertise in infant mental health, so early childhood development, early intervention prevention, um, supporting families, that kind of thing. And then Maria Music is a perinatal psychiatrist, so a medical doctor with expertise in um, mental health prescribing and treatment during pregnancy and postpartum. And the two of them came together and partnered with a licensed clinical social worker, Melissa Schuster, who also had a heart for this work and created this program called Mom Power that really seeks to give mamas a different experience than what they were given. So it was developed for mamas who've had hard past, mamas with um, trauma history, history of adverse childhood experiences, um, mamas with mental health struggles, mamas who maybe have financial stressors, who are trying to raise a baby on their own, all the things that we know make being a mama harder than it already is. Mom Power was developed to try to reach, engage, and support these women, um, to give them the felt experience of what it's like to be held in a safe and nurturing relationship so that those mamas would be better able to do that for their kiddos. Like really firmly rooted in the belief that you can't take care of someone else if you aren't taking care of yourself. And so for me, that just put out this light bulb of, gosh, rather than, you know, waiting years and years and years till problems emerge and then you've got a teenager who's struggling with depression and substance use and things like that. What if we get with a mama before the baby's even here and support her and help her feel healthy and empowered to know what to do and how to meet her child's needs so that that child who statistically is at risk for mental health issues given what mama's been through is now given a different path and that mama is given a different path. And so really kind of the ultimate early prevention is to work with mamas and families. Um, and so it's just been such a joy to to shift my um, clinical and research focus into that kind of perinatal and early infancy, early childhood window. Well, that's incredible. And it kind of sounds like, like you started looking at, you know, children and then you're like, well, you know, maybe we could prevent this instead of like trying to put band-aids on it afterwards. Is that kind of where that came from, the mom power interest? It is. And and sometimes I like the public health metaphor of like, you, if you are a helper, a lot of times we stand on the side of this river and we're like, people are drowning and we're trying to pull them out of the river. And what if we pause and go upstream and fix the broken bridge? Um, and I want to be really intentional to say in this metaphor, I don't think mamas are broken bridges. It's just a metaphor. And I, I just think that it wasn't fair. Like it just, it, it wasn't fair to ask parents to do all these really hard parenting skills with kids with big needs, big emotions, big challenging behaviors, if no one had ever taught them how to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. and so just that idea of really, um, changing pathways through, empowering these women in the context of relationship-based intervention. And I love that you mentioned like holding the mother, Mm -hmm. like as a mom, like when you feel that, like, I think that's what like every mother craves. And like, if you haven't had that 
before you were a mom, I think it's even more of an intense craving. But like when you get to experience that as a mother, it is so deeply healing. Mm, It really is. And it's also, it's healing to experience it. And yet it also, I feel like can bring up some loss and grief if when you realize you never had it. Mm. And so in Mom Power, we really work to hold space for those hard feelings and take the blame and the shame out of motherhood that I think our society is so terrible about putting all of these shoulds and um, just there's a lot of guilt induced motherhood things in our culture. And so Mom Power is a program that's trauma informed. It recognizes mamas are doing the best they can with what they've got given where they've been and what they've been through. And until um, somebody offers you a different way of being, you're, you're most likely to repeat what you know. And so at Mom Power, we just really seek to um, help these mamas learn strategies to take care of themselves, to recognize how their past um, challenges or traumas impact them and how to promote resilience in the face of that. I love that. I love that you mentioned that like it's not like blaming mothers, like they're not a broken bridge, they're not mm-hmm. faulty or anything. It's um, It's just like helping, like because I, I totally agree that sometimes moms like receive a lot of unnecessary blame for like all of. Oh my gosh. And clinical mom, psychology mom. is a terrible history of that, right? Like yeah. historically the field of mental health has been just like a mom blaming field. That's like, let's blame it on the mom. Um, mm-hmm. there's And there's just so much pressure out there. Like moms are expected to do it all and be it all. And it's just not healthy or helpful. So yeah, really taking, taking, the shame and the guilt out of that and and just focusing on um, what mamas want to do differently than how they were raised and what strengths they already bring to the table and how to um, empower them to lean into those strengths. I love that so much. Um, Are there any other like um, clinical or professional um, concepts that you wanted to share that could be useful for moms to know? Mm. I, The first thought that came to mind when you asked the question, Nicole, is I have to tell them about the tree. Um, and this is a metaphor we use in mom power and that has changed my life as a psychologist, but really as a mom, as a wife, as a daughter, as a human. Um, so if it's okay with you, I'd really love to try to give like a three minute overview of the tree metaphor. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Okay, so the tree represents the way that we all learn, grow, and thrive, and really represents how a child can form a secure and nurturing relationship with a caregiver. So for this example, I'm going to say mama, but it's really any caregiver. It could be a dad, it could be a grandparent, it could be a foster parent, adoptive parent, no right or wrong type of caregiver. And so just like a tree needs strong roots to be able to grow um, tall and long and large and healthy, um, kids need strong roots. And roots really represent how all humans have a basic need for connection. We are born hardwired for connection. Um, And when kids feel hard emotions, like when kids feel scared, when they feel hurt, when they feel sad, 
when they feel angry, they go down to the roots and they need caregivers to help meet their need for connection. This changes in how we meet the need for connection depending on the child's age and personality, but the general things that a caregiver can do when a kid needs connection is offer some kind of nurturance, help restore emotional balance. If the kiddo is feeling really big emotions, um, we call that being dysregulated and they need somebody bigger and stronger and kiser, kinder and wiser to help regulate them. So they need emotional balance and um, repair, um, repair anything that's kind of been broken. So like as parents, we get it wrong a lot of the time and and that can put kids in the roots when we aren't able to see and meet their needs immediately. And that's very normal, but um, kids need repairs. If I get really stressed out and, you know, snap at my toddler for spilling their milk, um, I'm human. It's okay. And they're going to go down to the roots and feel hurt and sad. And I just need to say, I'm sorry and make that repair. So that's the roots. It's connection. It's we all have a basic need for connection. And even as adults, we go to the roots when we're feeling angry, anxious, scared, overwhelmed, stressed, etc. When we have our need for connection met, when those roots kind of get what they need, then we're able to branch out. And branching out represents everybody's basic need for exploration. And in kiddos, really, we think about our youngest kiddos, exploration for our infants looks like things like exploring the world through putting everything in their mouth, looking around the room, exploring with babbling. Um, For our toddlers, this gets into the literal exploration of the space, right? They want to get into everything. They're exploring, they're learning, they're, they're playing. Kids explore through play. It's how we learn about the world and learn about relationships and learn about each other. Um, And so exploration is is just as important as connection and kids still need caregivers to be there as a secure base when they're exploring and so what that looks like is that kids need caregivers to see them exploring really notice them attend to them to help them um that might mean literally like as a kid is learning to tie their shoes helping them learn how to tie their shoes it might mean teaching them it might mean setting limits if like I think about my toddlers who need help remembering to stay on the sidewalk and not run into the road um, and to delight in them, to really enjoy their exploration and notice that it's exploration um, and, and delight in that as a form of healthy development. And so really the secure attachment between a caregiver and a child is built through all these many moments that happen thousands of times throughout the day where a kid goes from the roots to the branches, roots to the branches, and a caregiver is tasked with um, really being curious about where the kiddo is on the tree based on what they're doing and what they're feeling, and then trying to see and meet a kid's needs. Um, and so to do this in Mom Power, we, we have this, we call it the wondering and response wheel, but really it's just a circle that helps us get curious about how all of kids' behavior, really all humans' behavior, but I'll say kids, um, is a form of communication. It's, t- it's trying to tell us something. Um, and as a parent, it's my job to be curious about what the feeling, what the emotion is beneath the behavior um, and what the need is associated with that feeling. So if, um, you know, the other day I'm thinking I we were playing um, out back and everybody's happy and all of a sudden Gunner starts crying. So the behavior is that he's crying. He doesn't have 
words yet. So I, as a mama trying to use this tree metaphor, I kind of think about, okay, he's crying. That's the behavior. So I'm going to guess that the feeling is that he's sad or I really don't know because I don't like everything was fine. And now he's crying out of the blue. So I was very confused, but I'm going to guess he's sad. That means he's in the roots. What does he need? He needs connection. So I'm going to hold him, pick him up, nurture him, tell him it's okay. Try to figure out what's wrong. Um, and it turned out that he had like touched a fire ring that was still hot when we thought it wasn't. And he had a little tiny burn on his hand and he didn't have the words to tell me that, but his behavior told me that. Um, and so really using behavior as a, a clue um, that there's a feeling underneath the surface and something a, tr- a child is trying to tell us. And so when, it, when we think about that task for mamas of, okay, mamas, like be curious about your child's behavior be curious about the feeling connected to the behavior and then stay calm, stay regulated, even when your child is dysregulated and try to sensitively meet their needs, depending on where they're at on the tree. Like it sounds lovely, but Nicole, you're a mom. Like, you know, this is so much harder than it sounds. Mm -hmm. Um, And so often when kids have big feelings, that brings up big feelings in us. And especially for my mom, power mamas who have had really hard, a lot of them have come out of hard childhoods. They didn't have an adult who would stay calm and stay curious when they had big feelings. Maybe they're used to feelings being punished or feelings being ignored. And so the the thought is with mom power and really with all of the work that I do that we can't expect a mama to give her child an experience she's never been given. And, and so at mom power, we really try to Um, model that process of being curious about where mom is on the tree. What, how does her behavior indicate an underlying feeling and need and how can we as mom power leaders see and and meet that need? Um, And then this has a really powerful ripple effect through all of, of my relationships, personal and professional. And I'm really grateful to be a part of our state's infant mental health association. Um, it's called Aim High Tennessee because they're doing systems level work across our state to try to create this relationship based change where we don't just focus on what we do with vulnerable families or high risk mamas or young kiddos. We focus on how you are, how you are in your relationships, that you're you're compassionate, you're empathic, you hold a trauma lens, you hold a diversity lens, you're really wondering what somebody's been through and how that impacts their behavior and how they think and how they feel and how can we meet them where they're at um, to help promote resilience in the face of adversity. Wow, that, that tree metaphor has like a lot to dig into. <laughs> oh my gosh, Nicole. I realized I took more than three minutes, but I also want you to know that like mom power is a, a 30 hour intervention for these mamas. So like I'm trying to take something that takes us weeks to teach and, right. and make it a little sound bite for you. Oh, totally. I mean, I, and as you were telling it, I was like, man, this is such an awesome metaphor. Have you ever read the book? Um, I think it's called the hidden life of trees. I've read The Hidden Life of Bees, but no, <laughs> I, I haven't. The secret life. I think it's The Secret Life of Trees. It It's like about trees, but it's like um, like almost presents them as if they're like 
beings, like with a culture mm-hmm. almost. And like everything you're saying, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool in like the context of like how trees work. Anyway, so, um, but like, anyways, they like, because they talk to each other. No, I know. Roots, and I mean, you know? there's there's really incredible science out there about forest and communication between trees and moving of nutrients and um, yeah, I could talk to you for hours about how we can extend this metaphor. <laughs> right. But thank you for sharing that and like kind of giving us like an overview of mom power as well. Cause like that sounds incredibly powerful. I mean, I'm sure that's why it's called mom power. <laughs> well, that's, that's the idea. And the mamas, the early mamas in Michigan who are part of the project picked the name. So um, it's a mama focused name. But yeah. We yeah. want, we want to empower them to be the best mamas they can be. And we know all mamas want to be great mamas. It's just yeah. that all mamas aren't given the tools and the support they need to be totally. their best selves. Like no mom wakes up and is like, I think I would really love to be a horrible mother today. No, no, like, no, no, no. And just like when kids feel better, they do better and their their behavior is better. The same is true for us as adults. I think we just lose our compassionate, empathic lens with adults. We forget that adults were all once kids and not all of those adults had their needs met as kids. Yeah, totally. Well, let's talk a little bit about your personal like journey into motherhood. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, you had been working with, with mothers and children clinically research wise for a while um, what led you, like, what was your perception of motherhood before you ever, um, before you ever started your journey to you yourself being a mom? Oh gosh, it's such a great question. My perception of motherhood has changed with each stage of the journey. Um, I come from a strong matriarchal line of women. So as far back as I know, so as far back as my great grandma, mama, every woman had two daughters for several generations. And so I grew up in a very mama forward, female led family tree. Um, And because of that, I got to see some common threads of what it meant to be a mom. And some of those threads were things like unconditional love, being nurturing, um, taking care of others, serving and being a hostess. Um, And then I also got to see diversity in what it meant to be a mom because my grandma and aunts and cousins and own mother, everybody had a different journey of when they became a mom, how they became a mom. So we have I've got family members who adopted. I've got family members who waited to have kids. I have family members who stayed at home. I have family members who worked and raised kids. So I really had the privilege of getting to see a lot of examples of what it meant to be a mother. And from a very young age, felt that instinct, that maternal instinct, like strong and alive in me. And I know not all women have it. And I have no no judgment for women who choose not to be mamas. Um, I was just one of those humans that I think was born with a mothering instinct. And like as a young kid, I would, you know, play babies as many young kiddos do. I started, this is really funny. Um, I think you're around my age, so you might appreciate this. You remember the Babysitter's Club book series? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So at 11 years old, I started my own neighborhood babysitter's club and would like take a 
babysitter's club kit around to all these houses and babysit and like bring my own toys. So the kids had different toys to play with and just like was super into watching kids, nurturing, being in the church nursery, knew I loved it so much so that in high school and like, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but high school, Diana, as a senior, I got interviewed for the newspaper about something and I was asked, where do you see yourself in five years? And I, my answer was barefoot and pregnant with an MBA. Um, so even young Diana, even 17 year old Diana knew she wanted kids and knew she wanted a profession. So I feel like that has been a big part of my thoughts about what it would mean to be a mom. And then of course, as I went off to college and kind of became an adult, if you will, things changed and it wasn't five years. It was 15 years from then before I ended up having kids. And I, as we kind of started talking about I, my professional journey into motherhood and me- mental illness in motherhood and, and struggles in motherhood predated my lived experience with it. And so I think because of that, when it became time and my, my partner and I finally felt like, okay, now's the time to start trying. I feel like I went in with a really beautiful sense of the, the beauty and the challenge of motherhood. And that, um, there was a lot to be gained and a lot to be lost and that, um, yeah, that kind of that, I think of the word uh, brutal. I forget who coined it, but that idea that that something can be both brutal and, and beautiful at the same time. And I, I feel like that was really <laughs> a theme of, of kind of my own transition into motherhood. Yeah, I mean, you, I feel like you knew so much about it before you became a mother yourself like from a mental health perspective, professional perspective, how do you think that affected your person, like your profession perfected, uh, sorry, how do you think your profession um, affected your perception of motherhood? I think it had me go into the process with awareness of, of, all the range of things that could happen and that there's no knowing, like you just don't know until you're in it. Like I could know all the risk factors, for example, like I know, like I I preach this all the time, like pregnancy is a time of vulnerability when all women are at risk for greater mental health difficulties. Mental health difficulties are really common during pregnancy and postpartum. Nobody talks about it. And yet it's really normal. Um, And so like I could know that, but to know that is different than to be pregnant and to be feeling anxious and depressed. And then to like, for me, the challenge was because I had depression and anxiety through the pregnancy and postpartum. Then the challenge was like, this is my profession. I know all this. I shouldn't, I should know how to fix it. Um, And so that was one thing that felt challenging for me was like, I kind of knew it could happen. So I wasn't surprised by it. And I knew it was okay to talk about it. Um, But I was surprised at the amount of kind of guilt I felt that I couldn't just solve it on my own. Yeah. I mean, I think um, like, putting myself in your shoes, I think that really makes sense. Like expecting, like having very high expectations for yourself. 
since yeah. you do that professionally. Yes. Yeah. I think, and I think we all do this in a way, regardless of our professions, right? As we think like yeah. we should just be able to mind over matter things. And I know with mental health, like it's not just mind over matter, it's, it's neurochemistry and hormones and all these moving parts. Um, and so I'm grateful because of my training, because of my village and support system that I was able to like get over that guilt hump of like, I should be able to fix it and actually reach out for help and like get counseling and, and start medication and, and talk to my support systems about what I was feeling. Um, and, and yet, I guess it's just humbling and it's an important reminder that like no one is immune from it. You can, you can read books about it all day and know it might happen and that's not going to prevent it from happening if it's going to happen. <laughs> And I like that you said, like, that no matter what you do, like, you can still feel guilty about it. Because as you were saying that, I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, actually, I remember sitting with my therapist postpartum and telling her that I felt dumb for not being able to, like, because what she was doing didn't seem that, like, complicated to, like, kind of, you know, I was like, why can't yes. I just do this by myself? She's like, you mean, why can't you be your own therapist? Like, come on, that's a little ridiculous to expect that of yourself. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Right? I know. And I I love I love that you shared that, Nicole, because I think a lot of us, especially women, like we're we're taught that we're nurturers and that we can we can do this and we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't put our emotional burdens on others because our job is to take care of others and whether or not those messages are true or accurate or helpful is a whole different conversation. But I think a lot of us internalize those messages and um, makes it that much harder to, to seek help. And then yet when we do, usually those helpers are wise enough to remind us that like nobody is ever, no, we never outgrow the need to, to be held. Um, And that need changes at different stages of our life. But like we, we have our own trees. And when we're deep in the roots, we need somebody to help nurture us to help restore our emotional balance. And um, it's okay if we can't do that on our own. Totally. Definitely. Um, So you mentioned that during pregnancy, you had some depression and anxiety. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Other than that, like, what else was your pregnancy like? Well, it feels unfair to talk about the pregnancy without talking about the loss I had before the pregnancy. Well, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think you knew. I can't. Um, we didn't. I didn't tell many people when it happened. Um, so, I am a pretty Type A person and like to plan everything. And so when when Nathan and I decided it was the right time to try to have kids, like I was very much like, okay, I'm going to track my cycle and we're going to, you know, test when I'm ovulating and going to read the books about conception health and eat all the things and do all the things. And um, we were really fortunate and like lucky, like it's truly luck to get pregnant the first month we tried. Um, And, and just, felt so much joy, so much delight. And then, and like had the, the urine test at the OB, the blood test and everything, and everything was looking fine. So then me being like super close with 
some girlfriends and some family members decided I was going to tell people around like six weeks. I think I started to tell like my mom and my sister and um, my inner circle of female friends, partly because I just couldn't like I was so excited. I just needed somebody to know. It was like bubble, the joy was bubbling out of me. Mm-hmm. And partly because of what I do, I know that um you know, miscarriages are common. One in four pregnancies ends in miscarriage, and that's probably an underestimate. Um, and um, that so many people don't talk about it. And like, there's this culture of like, wait until after the first trimester before you tell anyone because you could lose it. Um, and so for me, it was really important to actually tell my support system I was pregnant in case something happened. Um, and then, I mean, I kind of foreshadowed the result. We went in for our first ultrasound, and I'll never forget it because it was my first ultrasound in my entire life that the tech wasn't saying anything. And I just remember like watching TV shows where the tech is like, here's the part and here's the foot. And I was like asking questions. I was like, can you tell us what we're seeing? Like everything just looked very confusing. Like, And she essentially said like, I'm not I'm not allowed to read it. The doctor will come in and tell you, you know, what it is. And I just remember like starting to think that's weird, but I've never been in an ultrasound, so I don't know. And so we waited and then the doctor came in, sat down. And the first thing he said is we, that they found indication that there were two babies. And so my first thought was like, oh my gosh, we're having twins. And then within like five seconds, it felt like forever between when he said we saw two babies that then he said, and neither of them seemed to be growing in the way that we would hope they would be growing. And I just remember that contrast from like shock, excitement, and just like despair all within five seconds. Mm-hmm. And and then from there, that was an eight-week ultrasound. It wasn't until 12 weeks that the, the physician's really confirmed it was non-viable. So then we had four weeks of uncertainty. And um, I, that was so hard, the, the, the four weeks of not knowing. My body felt like it wasn't pregnant. Like it, I could feel changes in my body when I got pregnant. And then I felt like those changes went away. But there were there was differing opinions between our OBs about whether or not to kind of call it or wait and see. And so with that uncertainty, I just remember feeling so much despair and also not wanting to burden others with the uncertainty, like the news, like of it might not be viable. So I think there were a few weeks where we just kind of kept that part. Nathan and I held that alone and that was really hard. And then eventually they confirmed it was non-viable, had a DNC done and the whole thing again like though i knew this was a risk and i i'm i am one to tell everybody like please talk about loss more because then mamas who go through it know they're not alone and um even though i knew that i remember feeling alone and feeling like no amount of preparation of like knowing it was a risk that could happen knowing a little bit about that process prepared me for how hard it really was to, to go through that process. And, um, just the many mixed emotions through it and 
and again, not being immune from it. Like even though you can prepare and know something bad might happen, but there's no way to prepare for the depth of grief you feel when that bad thing does happen. I can I can only imagine what those four weeks were like, of like in 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 this in between place. Yeah, I I don't wish that uncertainty upon anyone. I have uh, my sister in law. Um, she wrote an essay about a miscarriage that she had had. And, and she wrote it about this kind of in-between place mm. where she was like, um, since she's a writer, she like was very, like she's writing a lot about like the words of like, am I pregnant? Like, what does the word pregnant mean? Mm. Like, mm-hmm. And then um, she had, she let us repost it on the blog. So if anyone wants to read it, it's up there. But, um, and then she finds, I think it's a Japanese word that like describes her situation and that sounds beautiful like heartbreaking but beautiful yeah i had when i i had i wasn't i don't think i was even married and like definitely not like nowhere near having kids at the time when i read it and it still like destroyed me like like she's very good at writing but it um so I can only imagine, like, if just me reading an essay about it, like, can make me feel a certain way of, like, what it must have been like during that four weeks for you. Yeah. I was actually going to ask, I am not a professional writer, but I, to prepare for this podcast, went back and kind of looked through my journal some and came across something I wrote the day um, the day of the DNC. And I wonder, do you mind if I read a little oh. bit from that? Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Okay. So this was July of 2018, so a little over two years ago. It's a cool summer morning. Birds are chirping. Cicadas singing. I hear the train in the distance and yard work from down the street. Today is the day that marks the end of my first pregnancy. Those precious two little lives that were grown out of love. My heart aches knowing this is the end of that story. It felt meant to be. It felt blessed by nature. It felt right that baby, now we know babies, would have been conceived in the spring, the season of new life and growth, and then born in the winter, the season of slowing, stilling, reflecting, and being born anew. I'm grieving the loss of their lives, their spirits. Did they have spirits yet? As well as the loss of the story I'm grieving the loss of the innocent hope that if you want something badly enough, your wish will be granted. I'm trying not to lose faith in my body and not to lose faith in nature. I'm trying to trust that I can trust my body and trust nature. It's just hard to do so when I feel so disappointed, so unable, so powerless. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Thank you for allowing me the space. Wiping your tears right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's, there's healing for me in telling the story. So I'm so grateful that you do what you do, Nicole, and give folks a place to tell the story and share their stories. Yeah. And I'm sure that there are people listening that have had similar experiences and um, probably hear their own story mm. in 
your own and also in, you know, that very vulnerable um, journal entry as well. Um, so after you had the DNC, tell me what that was like afterwards. Yeah. Um, well, first I want to say, because no one said this to me, I didn't know that miscarriage could really be anything besides, I think what like the media portrays miscarriage, which is like where you miscarry, like your body miscarries and you, you know, I imagine like kind of like you bleed and something's wrong and, and the, the developing baby comes out. And so just the fact that I had to have a DNC, have a procedure in which they removed, you know, the developing babies is something that was new to me. So like, I didn't realize that was part of the process and that was hard for me. So I just want to tell any future mama that that is, there's many ways that that process unfolds. Um, the days following were awful. <laughs> I was, I mean, I mentioned at the beginning, I'm the co, you know, the president and co-founder of the Appalachian Perinatal Mental Health Alliance. We were about to host our first annual maternal health forum, like the end of the week of all of this. And like my mentors from Michigan were coming down to talk about mom power and perinatal mental health. And I had been working with all these providers in our region, including my OB, like, you know, that was going to speak at this conference. And so I just remember like the personal and professional just felt like trains crashing into each other. And I just wanted to crawl into my dark bedroom and sleep. And I did as much as I could. Like I just stayed in a dark room and slept and watched like children's movies, just like couldn't think, couldn't let, let myself feel and, and, and grieve. Um, and just had felt the, the need to kind of show up and see this thing through that I had helped to create. And that felt really important to me, this conference, thankfully, because of who my mentors are, Kate and Maria, you know, I told them, and then I had I had this village, this buffer of people in that space who knew what I had just gone through and knew how painful it was for me to be sitting in a room for an entire day talking about pregnancy and motherhood and all of that. And also just like be so fresh in my own loss. Um, and so I'm so grateful for so many reasons for Kate and Maria. And in that, in that day and in that moment, just to have my village there felt crucial. Um, and then once I got through that big work event, just taking time and space and like doing the grief work, like leaning into it was really important for me. And physically there's, I mean, it's still like you had a baby, right? Oh my gosh. Oh yes. It's that too. Like you were, I was pregnant and then one, you have surgery. So like, there's the, like, you know, the after effects of having surgery, which is like thing I'd never had surgery before. Um, so just physically feeling pain, feeling tired, feeling disoriented. Um, and then hormonally, like it took time for my body to readjust hormonally. So then there were like some symptoms of pregnancy that still felt there. Um, and, and yet there were, there was no baby to go with those, those symptoms. So that felt, challenging. And I will say, Nicole, through the whole process, I really longed for, like, I felt 
I think I felt like it was unfair. I kind of felt angry at my body that my body didn't have the miscarriage itself. Like Mm. if this wasn't meant to be, I really wanted my body to tell me that and not have to go through this like really cold and surgical procedure. Mm. Um, And so I felt it felt even harder to grieve because I didn't have that like physical release of the miscarriage. I had this surgical procedure done to me while I was asleep. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like motherhood has so many different like opportunities to feel that way about our bodies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really good example of one of them. Yeah. A lot of complicated relationships with our bodies during the whole motherhood process. So complicated and so much more connected than I had ever been with my body. Oh, totally. Yeah. And like times like there, there, there's times of it where I'm like, what is wrong with you? Why can't you just be on my team? And other times where I'm like, you are the most badass thing ever. Yes. Yes. It's such a loving relationship. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So as you're, you know, grieving, physically recovering, emotionally recovering. Tell me like what happened next in your story? Yeah. So going to therapy, you know, doing the work with my partner who has had his own grief journey and process. And gosh, I want to give a shout out to all partners who go through miscarriage and loss, because I feel like they're the undersung heroes of, of that hardship. And so I want to just speak that and thank Nathan publicly for all he did to hold me and thank my village for holding me through that. Um, so did a lot of therapy, went to some like women's groups to help have a space to do some processing work, um, gave myself permission to feel. Thankfully, that's kind of my profession. I give everyone else permission to feel. And so I finally gave myself permission to feel and and was really more anxious. And I say anxious because I think anxious captures like a combination of fear and excitement. Um, more anxious to get back into trying again. And like after miscarriage, you're supposed to wait a certain amount of time before you try. And so like we did that and that felt like forever and then started trying again, again, in my like type A way of tracking everything and metric, like taking ovulation tests and putting my legs up the wall, like an old wives tale thing. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and when we started retrying, we didn't get pregnant the first month. And I just remember feeling devastated. Like I felt like it was never going to happen. Um, and I'll jump to the, the happy news, which is we, we obviously got pregnant again. And it was the second month we tried. And, and yet that felt like forever. And so that painful waiting game just deepens my empathy tenfold for anybody who's struggling with infertility. Like I cannot imagine because if two months felt like forever, I can't imagine what a year, two years, three years would feel like. And so I just want to pause there and recognize that that trauma um, and that loss that so many women and families are going through in their own pregnancy stories. I feel the same because for for 
me, it was our second month trying. And so it was like not that long, but it was still like agonizing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, anyone else who, you know, goes through infertility, I just hats off and hearts mm -hmm. to you because mm -hmm. it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, so we got pregnant and I found out probably in October of 2018. And um, that second pregnancy, of course, I was so anxious during because of the loss of the first one. So like really paying attention to my body, noticing all these little changes. One, like one day I'd feel nauseous and the next day I wouldn't. And then I'd be like, oh no, did I miscarry? Because today I don't feel nauseous. So just super hyper aware of every little change in my body. The wait until the eight week ultrasound felt like years. Um, and then we went and we got there and the tech was talking to us like you know i now realize women if the tech isn't talking to you something is probably wrong um because when everything is right the techs talk to you or at least at this practice they did i didn't know that until i went through this journey um and yeah this time was another surprise ultrasound because this time the tech tells us like there's your baby i see a heartbeat and then like five seconds later there's your other baby. There's that heartbeat. And, and so like just shock again and delight, like just that relief of like, okay, there's a heartbeat. Um, I will never forget that day and that moment. And, and my poor husband just like sitting there being like, there's two, there's like, we're having twins. We're gonna have to buy two of everything. <laughs> I was like, it's okay, honey, we'll figure this out. Um, and so that feels like a really important moment in the in the pregnancy. Um, the second trimester, like I had a lot of nausea, a lot of headaches the first trimester. The second trimester, I had the like classic honeymoon where some of those symptoms abate, but the honeymoon in physical symptoms resulted in a spike in anxiety because again, I like I needed the physical symptoms to prove to me I was pregnant and the lessening of the nausea and having to pee all the time and all that stuff that happens in the second trimester just brought more anxiety of like, am I still pregnant? And like really relying on my OB visits and the ultrasounds to like reduce my anxiety, which I know is not a common healthy way to move through pregnancy. And at the same time, like I just, that's where I was at. That was but that's how I was feeling. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I, another part of the pregnancy journey was really, I'm, I'm a very, I don't know. I feel like I've got one foot in the East and one foot in the West and I'm like part type A, like super nerdy organized professional and part like super hippie nature loving mama. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted a natural pregnancy and delivery and like wanted to do things as holistically as possible, low intervention, like wanted to trust my body and trust nature. And, and um, if you didn't know this, identical twins are automatically a high risk pregnancy. And so that meant that I was going to be getting really intensive prenatal care with a high level of intervention. Um, and so that was hard for me to kind of reconcile my desire for a natural pregnancy, low intervention, kind of 
what will be will be and then nature love and trust and mama with like high anxiety high uh intervention and like really frequent ultrasounds and and things like that and and so that felt hard it felt like a loss of the the pregnancy that i had always dreamed i would have and thought i would have and um and then we get to the third trimester and we get to the day where I was 31 weeks and we went to, we were seeing a maternal fetal medicine specialist in Kingsport and we live in Johnson city. So, you know, every, I think we're at like going twice a week at this point. And so like oh, wow. twice a week driving 30 minutes, but also very grateful for like access to really wonderful healthcare. Um, and we went and the tech at this point, like I see the tech twice a week. So like we know each other, we make jokes, we, we talk, like she tells me what she's seeing. And on this day she was quieter and she kept redoing things. Like we knew the routine at that point, like they measure certain things in twins to monitor their growth, to monitor blood flow to their brain, et cetera, et cetera. And um, she wasn't updating us as much as she normally did. So then that was kind of my first flag. And then the, the, um, physician came in and said, you know, something's not right about these numbers. We're going to move you next door, check you out again and give you a different tech just to make sure it's not the equipment. So he, we did that. And then he, he said, you know, I think you need to go to the hospital and have these babies today. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and I think I said, like, are you serious? Like, what? Um, I it was a morning appointment. I had a full day of teaching and, you know, like meetings and had no intention of giving birth that day. Um, mm-hmm. And he was like, yep, you guys should head on, head on over. I'll call the OB and let them know you're on your way. And my, my partner asked, like, well, we don't have anything. Can we go home and like get a bag first? Like this was, I mean, it's 31 weeks. Like I was going to maybe pack a bag at like 33 weeks just in case. Right. Cause I know twins come early, but that's the average is 35 weeks for twins. So like, it was definitely not ready. And, and the doctor said like, no, I think you should go straight there. Um, and it turns out the twins had developed something called, um, twin to twin transfusion syndrome, which is something that identical twins are at risk of because they share a placenta. And it's where one twin is getting too much of the nutrients from the placenta and one isn't getting enough. And we knew this was a risk and that's part of why we were monitored so closely, but we were out of the risk window. Like there's certain weeks in pregnancy when you're at most at highest risk for this. And we had gotten out of that risk window and we're now at risk for other things, but not that. And so for that to happen, um, just took us by surprise. Of course, anytime somebody tells you, you've got to go have a baby today when you're not planning, it was super scary. Um, because we knew that meant something was wrong. The babies were in danger. And we have a, it's Dr. Visconti, who was our maternal fetal medicine specialist. And he was incredible and calm and empathic and, um, helped get us where we needed to be. And so we got to Johnson City Medical Center and within hours, I was in the emergency or in the surgery room. Um, again, this a mama who in my best dreams was going to have a vaginal birth with like my doula there and um, no medicine. And here I am. My 
Dulilith was over in Boone driving toward us, thankfully, because she was wonderful. We worked with High Country Doulas and they were an incredible team to support us, but like not there yet. Um, or no, she did make it. It's all a blur. She made it just in time to like give me a little head massage before I went into the surgery room. And I just remember the surgery room being so sterile, so bright, so overwhelming. And there were so many people there because every baby needed their own specialty like NICU team. Um, and so the delivery was really, really scary. I mean, I'm, I was just terrified we were going to lose a baby. Um, there's like a, a little humor story in, in here where I'm laying on the operating table completely naked, which I didn't know you had to do, but like, apparently like, it's just simpler to like, have you completely naked laying on an operating table, like arms filled with IVs. Um, and this, person in scrubs comes over to my head and is like, Dr. Moreland. And I was like, uh, yes. And she's like, did you give a talk on perinatal mental health last week to OB Grand Rounds? And I was like, uh-huh, yeah. And she's like, I was there and I really liked it. Like, hey. And I'm like, hi. Like, I really don't want to be. Colliding. Right? I know. It was one of those just moments. And like, looking back, it was a nice moment of like humor in a very scary time. But the, the babies were out within minutes. Um, Gunner came first, and he was the twin who got too much nutrients, so he was purple, like a like reddish purple. And Everett came second, and he was so white. Um, and they were so tiny, and it was just so scary. And I remember, of course, they get whisked away to, like, the incubators and the NICU team, and... I don't remember who was fighting, um, but I remember somebody really was advocating that the babies, that I got to see the babies before they whisked them up to the NICU. And they brought each baby over to, to like put near my face and let me touch them for about two seconds. And then both babies were gone. And it just felt, I felt so empty. Like I felt so scared and so helpless um and then gosh it's so hard to think about that day i mean yeah i i have a my sister um one of her one of her she had twins and one of hers wound up in the NICU and her stories about them being like whisked away or one of them being whisked away and just like the sheer confusion afterwards and all of the feelings it's just like seems like this big like tornado almost well and it yeah tornado it felt like too much to cross like so many overwhelming feelings um that like it almost like i feel like it was like a tornado or a storm that like resulted in this like ultimate like detachment um, Almost like it's so loud that you can't hear anything. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that was that was their origin story. Um, and then I, I had a lot of pain recovering from the C-section. I couldn't see them for the first – it took hours. Like, it felt like forever. But, I you know, I had to recover. I had to wake up. I had to pump. Um it was really, I really always wanted to breastfeed. And so like they had me pumping from the moment really I, I was conscious. Um, and I kept fainting while I pumped. 
So that was an interesting experience. Um, And I remember feeling this weird mix of emotions where I so desperately wanted to be with my babies. And I also was so terrified to go see my babies. And yeah, and I feel like I felt the same way when I finally got to go up to the NICU and see them that I felt so much love and so much sadness and fear all at the same time. What was it like seeing them? Terrifying. They were in the most intensive part of the NICU. So like the most machines, the highest level of ventilator, like forcing air in and out of their lungs. So their little chest was rising up and down. Um, It's an open NICU. So lots of alarms going off all the time. I didn't know what the alarms meant in, in the isolate. So we couldn't easily touch them. And then when we, we could like, I felt terrified that I was going to hurt them or mess up something that was life giving to them. Um, so just really overwhelming, really fearful for like, were they going to make it really helpless? Like there was nothing I could do. And just really sad. Like I, that was not what I had dreamt of. That was not what I had planned for. I thought I'd be in a quiet room, nursing them, my husband by my side, you know, my doula massaging my feet. Like I, I, it was, it was heartbreaking. It was, it was brutal, right? Like that, like it was so beautiful that they were here and it was so brutal. Yeah. How long were they in the NICU for? Gunner was there one month. Everett was there two months. So, where where were were they in Johnson City? Most of the time, um, Everett had to be flown to Lebanon in Memphis for a emergency heart procedure, um, and so I spent seven days in Memphis with him, and that was really hard because that meant I couldn't be in Johnson City with Gunner. Right. Um, and Gunnar was still in the NICU. Thankfully, my village is strong. Um, and my mom and my mother-in-law came up and took turns being with Gunnar and, and doing skin to skin with him. And um, that was a huge sense of comfort in a time when I felt so helpless and so torn between doing what we needed to do to keep Everett safe and also being there to help Gunner in this really traumatic and scary first few days of his life. Yeah. So was it pretty early on that he needed that heart surgery? Yeah, it was two weeks. Um, they were two weeks old at that point. So they came at 31 weeks. Gunner was three pounds. Everett was two. So they were tiny. And... Um, 
Everett had far more complications because he was what they call the donor twin, meaning he was the twin who wasn't getting enough nutrients. So he had a far more complicated experience in the NICU. And because of that, his this thing that connects your heart um, to, I don't even know, the rest of your body, your lungs, um, wasn't closing, right? So Gunner had it too, but it just closed naturally. And Everett's wasn't closing. It's called a PDA. And um, normally they can just give babies medication to help that process happen. But because because he had other health complications, including like an infection in his abdomen and they had to put a tube in to drain out things related to that. And so he already had like a lot going on medically. They couldn't give him the medication. And so we had to make the decision between open heart surgery at Johnson City or flying to Lebanon where they had this brand new um procedure where they put a catheter in through his leg, go up through his leg and put a tiny titanium plug in his heart. And the thought of putting this tiny little baby through open heart surgery felt terrifying. And so like, I just weighed the terror of like leaving Gunner versus Everett having open heart surgery. And, and we went with getting Everett to Lebanon and it was incredible and life changing. And it felt meant to be like throughout this whole journey, like my, my faith in, in a higher power has only gotten stronger because there were just so many pieces of the story that, that fell into place. Like for example, even the birth story, um, weeks later, one of the neonatologists at Johnson city medical center told me that they had never seen a case of twin to twin that bad in his career. Um, and that if we hadn't come to the, the hospital that day, we probably would have lost Everett, if not both of the babies. Um, and the fact that it was detected was really special because Dr. Visconti, the maternal fetal medicine who was monitoring us, he's one of, I think he's the only provider in this region that, that tests regularly for the specific type of twin to twin that my kids had, which was called TAPS, uh, twin anemia, polycythemia. And he like had a specialty training in his education and then moved here and and was doing this, this testing that not all maternal fetal medicine doctors do for these pregnancies. And so like the fact that he detected it, the fact that we got to the hospital when we got there, um, and then the fact that we get to Le Bonner and the nurse that was Everett's first nurse, um, I remember because nurses change every, you know, six hours, I think, are their shifts, Um, maybe 12 hours. It's all a blur again. But like she was going off shift and she wasn't going to be back for a while. And we really liked her. And and then she came back the next morning and I was like, I thought you were off. And she was like, I was off, but I changed shifts because actually this procedure that you're about to have done was invented here. And the doctor who invented it is the one who's going to do it with your son. And I was the nurse who helped him. And the first patient we ever did this one, his name was Everett. And I just felt like I needed to be here for this. Can you believe that? No, I know. I'm like crying, man. I know. I know. So he got the, he he got the procedure. LeBonner was incredible. The moms, um, Mimi and Grandma, you know, were with Gunner, and then we flew back, and Everett went back into Johnson City Medical Center NICU at Nicewanger, and Gunner got to go home soon thereafter, and that was really hard because now I went from having both babies in the NICU and knowing where I needed to be to be with my boys to having 
a preemie at home and a preemie in the NICU, and that presented a whole new set of challenges of of feeling like I could never be enough. I could never be in both places at once. So that was a new challenge. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of moms feel pulled in two directions and you are literally, you know, pulled in two directions. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, And Nice Wonder was incredible. They did excellent work. A big shout out to the nurses. The whole team was incredible, but, you know, the nurses are the ones there with the babies most day in and day out. And, And Everett came home. Um, two days after Father's Day, and they have both really been home ever since. Well, man, it's such a big story. Like, all everything in your journey is, like, just big. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It feels big. It feels big. Um, so... When you finally got to bring both boys home, um, what was it like adjusting to that? Um, <laughs> that's such a blur. I remember being terrified. I remember crying. I think it was Gunnar's first night home, crying because I couldn't figure out how to put the preemie bottles together and just being convinced I was going to starve him to death. Um, it was a, yeah, it was a blur. It was a lot of them crying, me crying. Um, I was at that point, I think Gunner was finally breastfeeding. They both had to, because of being premiums, they had to start on the bottle and transition to breast. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I think Gunner was breastfeeding. Everett hadn't mastered it yet. So I was pumping every three hours to have milk to give to Everett and breastfeeding Gunner. So I just kind of felt like I was breastfeeding or pumping nonstop. Um, and living in pretty constant terror that something bad was going to happen for the first week or two because we were so used to the babies being on monitors that it felt really scary to not be able to watch their heart rate or their breathing rate all the time. Um, And it felt really, really wonderful to have both babies home and to have a partner who loved them and loved me and was there through it all to have parents and in-laws and siblings and community members who just showed up. I mean, we say it takes a village, but y'all, it takes a village, like in a healthy village. And and not everybody has the privilege of having a village or having a healthy village. And, and we did. And, and people, you know, brought meals, cut our grass, um, washed all the pumping gear, and just really supported us and and even with all of that support it was still hard so i i just my heart goes out to families who don't have that village and i part of i think that's part of why i love what i do so much with mom power is it's really trying to create villages for these mamas who might not have them otherwise yeah that's so important speaking of like your relationships with your people in your village and your partner, um, how did you see your relationships change um, Mm. during this whole process? Much more respect and appreciation for my mom. And I'm a pretty like loving daughter. I, I felt like I had a lot of appreciation for her, but now like on a whole different level, like, 
oh my goodness. This is so hard to love somebody or somebody's so much and to also feel so helpless at the same time. Um, so a lot of, lot of love and respect for mama. Um, gosh, with Nathan, my, my husband, I actually was asking him as we, I was thinking about this podcast. I asked him the other day, like what it was like for him or, or how I changed and, this was like five nights ago, Nicole, and he said, I feel like I just got my wife back. <laughs> I believe that. Yeah. Now? There are 18 months. Yeah. I would even say like, wow, that's pretty early that he feels like he got his <laughs> yeah. wife And I was like, I was like, man, wow, thanks for saying that. And like, in what ways? And he shared like, because of the anxiety and depression, like I would, of course, was just like very irritable, very stressed, very overwhelmed. Like he felt like nothing he could do was enough or could help. So like that sense of helplessness. And then once the babies were here, he felt like, and understandably, like he had a lot of understanding for this, but he was like, as soon as the babies were here, I went from being your number one priority to being on the back burner. Like the babies came first and the baby's needs came first. And that was different. Like, that's just, you know, not how it is when you're married and don't have kids. Like you can put each other first. And when, when the boys arrived, like in a big way, not just like new babies, but like new babies with medical complications and in the NICU, like, and so, yeah, I think it put a lot of stress on our relationship. It's probably the, I mean, not surprisingly, the hardest years we've had in our marriage, we, we fought more than we've ever fought. We've cried more than we've ever cried. We've, um, I feel like doubted, you know, like, can we do this? Will it work? Um, it's just hard. It's so hard to, to transition into parenthood (laughs) period. Like it's so hard. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have a loving, nurturing, emotionally intelligent, progressive partner. And it's still so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've leaned into our supports. We both really um, value friendship. And, like, we each have a really close friend that we, we try to take time to, like, do something with um, just me and my girlfriend or just him and his guy friend. We both value self-care and and taking time for ourselves and then when we realized like that wasn't going to be enough to get us through this we leaned into the employee assistance program that ETSU provides me and got some marital counseling and had someone help us think through how do we communicate and how do we navigate these stressors and and that was really helpful too so I'm just um it's the hardest thing we've ever done it's it I know it'll continue to be hard I know we're not out of the weeds but I'm I'm grateful that I'm like emotionally starting to feel more like myself and relationally in my marriage feeling like we're getting back to a place where um, we can, we have the emotional resources and a little bit of the time, like one hour a night, right after bedtime to like invest in each other. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I think Mm -hmm. um, like that's very common to a lot of are like a lot of mom's stories. I know it is for mine, definitely. Yeah. Um, We got to normalize it, right? Talk about it. Yep. Um, You kind of touched on this, um, but like your emotional life 
I mean, as, as we went through this, you kind of touched on mm-hmm. the intensity of some of these emotions. Um, is there anything else you want to add about how your emotional life has changed during this whole motherhood process? Hmm. I'm having two thoughts. One is related to the anxiety and depression. And I just want to say that I really wanted to work on my anxiety and depression through coping strategies, through therapy. And I tried that and it wasn't enough. And I ended up getting on medication. Um, And I had a lot of guilt around that because um, I didn't want to be on medication during the pregnancy. Even though I'm a professional that knows that untreated depression and anxiety impact a pregnancy negatively in a similar way to being on medication. So like the risk benefits of not medicating versus medicating moderate to severe anxiety and depression now, like balance out. And I knew this intellectually, but emotionally had a lot of stress and guilt around making that decision. And yet it was the only thing that helped. Um, I shouldn't say the only thing. It was the thing that helped me get out of the depths of that depression enough to then the where the behavioral stuff could help, like spending time with friends, doing things I enjoy, exercising, that kind of stuff. Um, so I want to acknowledge that part of my story. I also want to acknowledge, gosh, the the guilt and the shoulds and the, the kind of that, the message that I think a lot of us have been given that to be a mom is to be selfless and to put our needs to the side in the sake of nurturing our children. And I started by saying I come from this really beautiful line of women and mamas and part of what I learned is how to love unconditionally and and to, to nurture. And something that I'm having to work through now as a mom is how do I balance those values of, of loving and nurturing and giving of self without, without losing myself? Mm without um, becoming a martyr in the name of motherhood. And that's something that's been a new frontier for me to to think about emotionally, socially, um, just in how do I how do I balance putting my kids needs, like meeting my kids' needs, but also meeting my needs. Um, And that's something I'm still working on. I think that's like a very involved thing as well. Like figuring out how to like balance who am I with motherhood? Like, and then all the emotions mixed in with all of that. Like, as you have been like, I don't know, tell me a little bit more about how your identity has been affected with motherhood. Mm. Yeah. Um, gosh, because of the work that I do, I have this beautiful illustration. I'm all about the metaphors today, apparently, Nicole. I have this Ill- image of a flower when I think about my identity. And like Diana's at the center. And then I have all these petals of these things that make up my identity. So I have um, my occupation. I'm a psychologist and professor. I have where I'm from. I grew up in the Chesapeake Bay region of coastal Virginia. I have um, my faith upbringing. I have the fact that I'm married. I have the fact that I'm 
um, a white woman who was raised in a middle-class family. I have like all these parts of my identity and I'm a, I'm, I'm a woman. Like I, I identify as a woman. So that's a big part of my identity. And then motherhood came and kind of just, I don't know. Like, I feel like it put a magnifying glass on all parts of my identity and made me kind of zoom in and think about what does this part of me mean now in the context of motherhood? It's almost like the flower is still there of who I am. And now there's this lens of motherhood through which I'm viewing the entire flower. Um, And so like parts of you know, I'm a, I'm a professional, like, I love my job. I feel like that's a big part of who I am. Um, and yet I can't disentangle the psychologist professor part of me from the mom part of me. Like I can't compartmentalize those things. Like I am a mom and a psychologist. It's not separate petals of the flower. The, the mom lens is on the whole flower. And sometimes that's really beautiful because like with the work that I do, like I'm already in the line of parenting work and working with kids and families. So like in some ways I feel like it's made me better at what I do. And then in some ways I feel like it's, it's challenging me. Like, so for example, um, I do a lot of work around diversity, equity, and inclusion and trying to um, help change systems and policies that um, discriminate against folks. And with the work that I do, I know that like our mamas of color are at much greater risk for having um, dying because of pregnancy or postpartum complications, having their babies die because of pregnancy and postpartum complications, not having access to healthcare, having mental health difficulties, not getting treatment. Like we have a biased and broken system. And so to me, motherhood is also like, I think brought out a greater awareness of some of the privileges that I have, um, being a white educated upper middle-class woman, like, and with that awareness of the privilege has come an even stronger desire to be an advocate for change, um, and to speak to the parts of our systems that aren't working or aren't working well for all people or are discriminating against certain people. And so it's, it's kind of lit a fire within me to use, use the privilege I have for good, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So there's my metaphor, that flower under like a magnifying glass of motherhood. I love that. So you kind of, you kind of touched a little bit on like, your status almost and like one of the things that tends to change during matrescence is our status within the group Mm. whatever group that may be Mm -hmm. how have you seen that play out in your own life well i the first thought that came to mind is that i have this really badass i'm allowed to say badass i have a badass group of female friends in this region um that are just like we all have crowns like empowering like we can all have crowns and celebrate each other and it's not competitive and it's just this really special village. And a lot of them have older kids. So a lot of them were mothers before I was. And I always felt connected to the group, but I always felt a little bit like an outsider looking in. And now I feel like one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that way, I feel like it's, it's changed my status to, for, for good. Um, 
I also feel like professionally, I work with a lot of mamas and now I get the street cred of being a mama, which has been really fun. <laughs> like yeah. it's one thing to like teach a parenting class and be like, I'm an expert in this because I went to school forever. And it's a whole other thing to be like, I went to school forever, but I know nothing. And like, yeah, my toddler just pooped on the floor too. Like, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. totally. Um, so it, I think it's just helped elevate my like mama street cred status in my mama groups and in, in my professional work. Um, and thankfully, I in the psychology department here at ETSU, we have a super family-friendly progressive work environment. So I feel like my transition into motherhood was celebrated and supported. And again, that's another place, Thinking, speaking of that magnifying glass of privilege, like I can't imagine having gone what I went through with the NICU stay and having to be in the NICU all the time and not having like a job that allows me to be in the NICU all the time and still have a paycheck. And it, it really has raised my awareness of the importance of, of paid family leave for both caregivers um, and the importance of, of supporting policy change around that. You know, I think you're the first person that I've interviewed for the podcast that has said that their status like has been almost elevated because <laughs> of motherhood. Yeah, I think it's a unique combination of me being in a pretty privileged category as like a white upper middle class cisgender female and the fact that I do research and practice in the very things through which I'm going through. Right. Um, But I will I will say thank you to the stars for making that happen and just to the village. Like, again, I want to shout out to my colleagues in the psychology department, to to my friends, to my family, to my infant mental health family, you know, like I've just, I'm, I have a a really incredible village. And I think it just shows how this transition into motherhood really can be an empowering and beautiful thing. If the village believes it's power and powerful and beautiful. Mm. I love that kind of like, um, I was reading recently about how some cultures will look at pregnancy as this opportunity to like almost revive the group and bring the group closer together. Mm. Um, and that that sounds like what it has been like for you, at least in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we had kind of you'd kind of we'd kind of talked about the physical impact of motherhood. Um when we when you shared about your miscarriage, um, when you look at overall your experience with matrescence and your transition into motherhood, um, which is ongoing, obviously, um, what kind of impact has like the physical toll of motherhood taken on you? Mm. Good question. Um, well, during pregnancy, lots of body changes. Um, and like, I, the first one I remember noticing and just being like, this is weird and a little uncomfortable. It's just my breast getting larger. Um, and then because of twins, I like, got a pretty big belly pretty early on. So there was a lot of, I had a lot of pain in my hips, in my pelvic floor and in my ribs. And again, speaking of privilege, great healthcare, great access to healthcare, great insurance, was able to get pelvic floor therapy. And that made a huge difference in helping me learn techniques to relieve the pain that I was having during um, my second and third trimester. So thank you, Noelle, for that. Um, 
I postpartum was really surprised at how long it took me to recover from the C-section and just like how much pain I had. It was, I couldn't walk for a few days. Um, And then, you know, for weeks after just the pain at the incision site and not being able to move like I was used to. And then being just surprised at kind of losing my ability to move in ways my body was used to during pregnancy and postpartum. So I one of my biggest coping strategies in terms of exercise has always been running and yoga. And both of those things were really severely impacted um, by pregnancy and postpartum. So just kind of losing some traditional coping strategies and having to develop new ones and um, changing my relationship with my body in terms of like I would notice I was getting frustrated at times that I couldn't do certain things. Like I can't bend this way or I can't lift this thing I'm used to lifting or I can't run like I'm used to running and feeling that loss. And then also trying to be intentional to bring in the why behind the loss of like, it's because my body is growing to create space for these two humans. And and that helped me remember what it was really about and helped make it worth it and helped me feel a more... Um, positive relationship with my body. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, as we're you know closing up here, what what advice or nuggets of wisdom would you like to share with mm-hmm. our listeners? <sighs> you can't take care of others if you don't take care of yourself. And that we never outgrow the need to have somebody else nurture us and help us restore emotional balance when we're feeling overwhelmed or feeling sad. Um, That we're not meant to do it alone. Like we are meant to do this in relationships. We're meant to do this in a village and, and to lean into the village. And if you don't have a village to to be curious about ways to find one. I mean, here in Now Motherhood, I feel like creates that. Cherish Mom in our region is holding support groups to try to create that. For some people, churches can create that. For some people, neighborhoods can create that. Like, there's no one right way to create a village. But I think just finding people who celebrate us when we branch out and support us when we're in the roots is ultimately what we all need and giving ourselves permission to like not be okay and to be in the roots because that's human. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything that I missed about your motherhood story that you'd like to share? I think we talked about it. I I appreciate the, like I said, it's therapeutic and helpful for me to to tell the story. This is the first time I've sat down and told it all in one place. And it's, it's incredible how, sad and also how um, hopeful I feel at the same time after telling the story. Because I should say that Everett and Gunnar are 18 months and they are healthy and happy and beautiful, playful, silly little boys. So like it is, there's a beautiful ending here. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for sharing and being willing to be open about your experience with matrescence and your transition into motherhood. Mm, Thank you for holding a platform where we can share. I really appreciate you, Nicole. Yeah, thank you so much.
Until next time, this has been the Here and Now Motherhood Podcast.